God is with us. This is our joy together as a church family. And next Sunday is Christmas Eve. We have four services. Let's review a little quiz. Next Sunday, four services. The times are 9, 11, 1, and 3. What you need to know is that all of those are identical services. You can come for all four if you want. But all four will be the same. All four are candlelight services. All four our entire church family, which means all ages coming together. And one other consideration, when you think about the 52 Sundays during the year, it's been researched that this is the Sunday that people are most likely to come. Think about that. Your friends, your family, coworkers, neighbors, as you extend by faith an invitation, say, do you want to come with me? This Sunday, more than any other Sunday, people will say, yes, I want to come with you. And we know, as you think back in your own story, as people invited you into a relationship with God, into returning to God, one invitation, God can use it to change a heart, a family, a destiny. So let's walk by faith this week as we continue to pray what God's going to do, not only in our church, but around the sound, around the nation. This is a time when we clearly need Jesus. And this is a place where we celebrate the Lord. The themes of Advent, the hope, the peace, We have the joy and the love of Jesus, of Jesus. Very personal. And let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, thank you for the ways you work in our lives. Who are we that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you care for us? But you do. You made us. You love us. And God, you don't give up on us. You're patient with us. And God, thank you for your grace and mercy today. Thank you, Jesus, as we worship you today. We have no greater joy than you, Jesus. And I pray that we would welcome you fully. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The birth of Jesus announced by the angel, good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Let's say that together. Good news of great joy. As you say that, it's hard to keep a smile off your face, right? It's hard to be grumpy and say, good news of great joy. Uh, Good news of great joy. Those are the words that God chose through the angel to announce that the Savior is born, to announce that God is with us. At that time, joy withered, but the Savior is now born. In days that we live in, joy can fade until you realize the Savior is born. And not only in Advent do we look back and celebrate his birth, but right now we receive him into our hearts, his presence, our leader, our Lord, and we look forward to the fullness of joy when Christ returns. And we continue to celebrate. We will never stop celebrating Jesus. If you fast forward a million years from now, you know what we're going to be doing? celebrating the Lord. Not from a distance, but up close and personal. We will celebrate the Lord. His birth changes everything. This is significant this time of year as we savor the truth and the promises of God. And yet we live in a world today that's asking the question, where's the joy? Where's the joy? The world today is desperate for joy. In that question, where's the joy? I believe that's the very question that the prophetess Anna is going to answer. When you consider Anna 
in Luke chapter two, and you can turn to verse 36, just a couple verses on her life. As you think about the question, where's the joy? I think Anna's saying, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you, there's an answer to that question, where's the joy? And here's four insights from Anna's life. Let's take a look at Luke chapter two, verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. What do we notice, not just from Anna's words, but her life? First, joy can be found as we're learning to linger in God's presence. Learn to linger in the presence of God. There's no greater gift than his presence. And we read that Anna, she was worshiping both day and night. She loves to be in God's house. I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of the Lord. Why are we glad to gather and gather on Sundays? Because we want to meet with God. And she is someone who is ready to praise God, hungry for God, seeking God, wants to be close to God. The same is true with the wise men that came from the east. They were coming to seek God, hungry for God, humble themselves before God. Is that your story? Is that your desire today? Are you here because you want to humble yourself before God? You're seeking God. You desire God's presence. That's a very wise place to be in life. It's foolishness that runs away from God, but we draw close to God with praise. And she brings this praise in a situation that you could consider to be very difficult. Why? She doesn't have her husband. She lost her husband. She was married for seven years, and then tragically, her husband dies. She's been single ever since. That's her situation. What do we know about God? God is close to the brokenhearted. God is one who restores, who heals. God is one who can bring a satisfaction that's much deeper than our situation. God is a void filler. I know this in my own life. When my parents divorced and my father was far apart, relationally, emotionally, physically, and then I came to know my heavenly father, my heavenly father started to fill voids in my life that my earthly father didn't fill. And you're gonna have situations in your life where there's voids. You might be in between jobs and there's a void. You might be struggling with the health condition and there's a certain void. Your body isn't working how you want it to work. There's voids in your life and our heavenly father shows up with his presence in those very areas of emptiness and starts to fill us and even bring joy that's deeper than the circumstances we face. It's a deep circumstantial joy that we desire, but God brings a deep spiritual joy that transcends the situation. Well, Habakkuk, that's his story too. Habakkuk is a prophet in the Old Testament. In chapter three, though the fig tree does not bud and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, that's just a realistic account of what's happening in his life. He has questions. He goes to God, and then he decides, yet, that's a key word in our walk with God. We say, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will be joyful in God my Savior. Habakkuk learned that it's a choice to rejoice. And the Bible says rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. This is the shift in Habakkuk's life. For many years, his joy was found in the harvest. Look at the fruit. Look at the animals. Look at what this means financially. His joy was attached to his job. His joy was attached to the harvest. But what happened when there's no harvest? His joy withered. Sometimes we need to step back in life and say, what is my joy truly dependent on? What is my joy linked to today? And yes, to some degree, it is linked to some blessings. I'm not trying to say that that's completely mutually exclusive. But the trap is that we're trying to find our joy in things that can be gone or lost. And what do we do when those things are gone? For Habakkuk, he felt despair. There's no harvest this year. There's no animals this year. And his spirit was sinking. And then he shifted and he realized, I'm gonna find my joy in the Lord and I will rejoice I will go to God who doesn't leave, who's always faithful, who is that source of joy beyond the harvest, and I'm gonna shift and find my joy in the Lord. Maybe you've got some disappointment, and out of that disappointment, maybe you're realizing that you're putting pressure on different people, situations, possessions to bring you joy. And the shift that's life-giving is when you realize that deep joy that I want, it's found in Jesus. And I'm gonna go to Jesus. That's what the prophet learns through that shift. And the good news is Jesus is not running low on joy this year. Jesus is not running out of joy. And his living water, that's a well where you'll never find the bottom of that living water. Jesus has joy for us. In John chapter 15, verse 11, we read, As Jesus says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Our joy is not complete in and of ourselves. Jesus is saying, I have joy for you. I want to give you joy. It's my joy, but it's going to be in you. So receive it because when you receive my joy, you're going to experience a complete joy. And that's a check for us to be ready to receive the Lord, his presence, and his joy. There's a phrase in the Bible in John chapter two, his first miracle. Well, that gets our attention. What is that first miracle? Jesus turns water into wine. And it's at a wedding. And you think of weddings as one of the most earthly, joyful experiences and days that we will ever have. And yet they've run out of wine. The joy is not in the wine. But the people who are leading the wedding, which lasts for days, are starting to stress out because there is no wine. And Jesus turns the water into wine, and he does it in the ceremonial jars. Now, the wine's a blessing, but even much more than the wine that they're going to drink is in these ceremonial jars, which represent the tradition, that represents the legalism, represents the system, the cleansing jars. Jesus, it's so clear, legalism won't produce joy. Religion in itself won't produce joy. These things and traditions don't produce joy. But Jesus is saying right in the middle of that, hey, Pharisees, hey, Sadducees, not your system, 
but this new joy that's coming that's greater than anything you've experienced, that's the joy that I'm bringing. And the first miracle that Jesus brings, some people will criticize it and say, oh, that seems so superficial. I mean, water into wine? Couldn't he have helped someone who couldn't see, helped someone who couldn't walk? Couldn't he have raised someone from the dead? No, he turned water into wine because he's announcing, here comes the joy for whoever's thirsty. Whoever's thirsty. Well, Isaiah chapter 12, verse six. How do you summarize this? Shout aloud. When's the last time you just gave God a shout of praise and sing for joy? When's the last time you just sang with all your heart, praised him with all your being? People of Zion, do this. Why? Why would we do that? I mean, we're into casual worship and, and you know, why would we need to get excited about God? Because great is the Holy One of Israel among you, among you. God is with us. This changes everything. How great is our God? Why do we worship? Do we worship because we feel like it? That's not gonna be a very strong worship. We worship because God is so great that he moves and inspires us so much. How could I be stingy with my worship of that great God? I just can't stay quiet about the goodness of God. It's not because we have to. It's because we see him and we want to. And then that overflow and the joy that comes from the Lord's presence. You see, because of our humanity, we're so focused on what we can see and hold and touch. And I'm telling you, the one we worship, we don't see him. We will see Jesus. We will see him face to face and we will bow down. If you haven't worshiped, really gone for it your whole life, in that moment, you will bow down before him and finally worship him with everything you have and are. But right now, we worship the invisible God. And and we always want, you know, because we can't see God, we're like, well, let me just put my worship on this person. Let me just put my worship on this career. Let me just push my worship on this success, on this money over here, on this retirement account. We constantly move our worship towards what we can see and touch. But no person or thing or accomplishment is worthy of any of your worship. Don't give them to God and God alone. May all the worship and praise be. And then with our Lord, don't hold back. And there's joy in his presence. Just linger in his presence. I went for a run yesterday. We're all getting ready to move our feet for some clean water for some kids in Africa. Uh, I went for a run yesterday. I just wanted to run and I brought the Bible and I just listened to the Bible and I ran and I ran and it was many miles. I listened to lots of chapters of the Bible and there was just feeling close to God in his presence. There's something about scripture where when you just play it and listen and just spend time and listen, God speaks, God refreshes your soul. I came back a little physically tired, but my soul was refreshed. It's kind of ironic that I had to run to just be still in in some ways and just run. It happens on the airplane when I travel. I'm not someone who just wants to watch the screen. Maybe that's you, nothing wrong with that. But for me, it's like, I, I just, in the quietness of the travel on the airplane, even if it's a five hour trip, it's like there's a stillness there where it's just me and God. 
in the time in his presence where God strengthens you and he gives you his perspective again and he brings you that hope again and all of a sudden the challenges you face, they start to fall into place and his joy. How many of you, your story is that you faced a lot of challenges over the decades, but God has been so faithful and with every one of those, what ultimately you've seen is that his joy and grace and faithfulness is greater than whatever you've had to go through. And, and it doesn't even come close. Well, uh, don't rush. I know we live in a culture that rushes. Don't rush and hurry. Learn to linger in the presence of God just to receive, just to be close, just to abide. And the Lord, his joy is gonna be your strength. Here's a second message I believe from Anna. It's finding out what really satisfies. We read that she's fasting. For most of us, when we read the word fasting, we don't think satisfaction. We think, oh, hopefully not too often, right? That's, that's our reaction with fasting. Why? Fasting is giving something up, giving up some food, giving up some entertainment. In this situation here, she is without some of those small comforts. There are literal comfort foods. Food can be a comfort. Food's a blessing. We all need food. But why fast? Why fast in a culture where the message and the anthem is always more? Our culture always says more. You're down, get more. Have more. More of more is the song of our culture. If you only have a little more. And then we read this word fasting and we realize God's turned it upside down in the kingdom again. And God's message is less is more. More isn't more. Less is more. Less distractions. Less noise. Less where it's simplified. And who I'm really seeking and connected with, who has my undivided attention, is God. And out of that undivided attention leads to an undivided heart. And maybe I don't need a thousand things. Maybe I'm chasing some things that aren't essential to my joy. And in this fasting time, what Anna's figured out is what really satisfies. The disciples were focused on food. And they would tell Jesus in intense moments, Jesus, eat. John chapter four, Jesus, have some lunch. Jesus, you haven't eaten in a while. Jesus, here's some food. Jesus, enjoy the meal. Finally, Jesus just says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. There's food for our stomachs that has some value, but he says, my food, what gives me nourishment, my daily food, it's so much more than what I'm gonna eat in the next meal. My food is literally to glorify the Father and to complete the work that he's given to me. That's the food I'm focused on. And God's about to bring, bring a revival through this Samaritan woman that the disciples didn't even understand. God's thoughts and ways are higher than ours. And when there's no food, there's a time of fasting and seeking God. We're gonna do this in January, by the way. Feasting in December. But every January, we have a time of fasting, intentionally seeking God. And as you do that, as you put aside the food or the entertainment, there's a humbling that happens. And there's a returning to God that happens. There's a shattering of the pride. And there's a contentment that happens. And it's powerful and God communicates and God calls us to return to him. David understood this because David made some choices that didn't honor God. In Psalm 51 verse 12, he's returning to God. He says, restore to me the joy 
of your salvation. And what he's saying here is that all my sinful choices, they have diminished and stolen your joy in my life, God. I've chosen sin instead of you, but now grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The joy of the Lord returning, and it's through prayer. You can pray right now silently. The person next to you doesn't even know. You just say, God, I'm turning from my sin today, and I'm returning to you, and may your joy God, the joy of my salvation, may it come into my soul again. And God restores David and raises him up. In Psalm 4, verse 7, David writes this, fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. Grain and new wine are a blessing. Harvest is a blessing. But God, far beyond that, fill my heart with your joy. In our culture, there's so many things that are like a mirage, People run for them thinking this is what life is all about. And then they experience them and they think, oh, that wasn't quite all it's cracked up to be. The hype didn't back up the hype. It's like a mirage and people feel duped and people feel disillusioned because they think, well, I thought if I have all the money, I thought if I have that one girl, that one guy, I thought if I have this house and this car, I thought if I'm a millionaire, I'll... You know what the studies show about the lottery? The people who win the lottery report no more happiness after winning the lottery. It's like a big mirage. Oh, one day, what if I won the lottery? Well, one day you wouldn't be happier than you are right now. And and we're chasing this green grass somewhere thinking that's finally gonna do it. You know, Harvard did a longitudinal study and followed one group of people through decades. You know what they found at the end of their lives? Here was the number one key to to joy, relationships, relationships, joy-filled, loving relationships with other people, of course, and then there's no greater relationship than a relationship with God. Don't wait until the end of your life to realize, oh, life's about relationships. That's good to know. It's good to know. You can know that now. And Harvard did study on human flourishing and said that people are active in their faith. Active in their faith. Harvard's telling you, it's about relationships. It starts with God and with other people because God brings joy through other people and connecting with other people. That's how his love travels as well. Nehemiah understood the joy of the Lord. In chapter eight, verses nine through 10, this was a time where there was rebuilding. This is a time where they had been in exile. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. They're they're getting convicted. They're returning to God. There's spiritual renewal. But Nehemiah said, go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Doesn't that sound like this week? Doesn't that sound like what's gonna happen this week? Go enjoy choice food, sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah had a big calling on his life. You have a big calling on your life. Nehemiah, There's a big job. There's a big project. Rebuild a wall that's been destroyed to protect the city. You have a big job. It could be your work. It could be that you're a parent. 
It could be that God has called you an assignment. It could be overseas. You have been called with a great assignment and purpose on your life. Like Nehemiah. And like Nehemiah, there were big amounts of challenges and opposition. There were people who wanted to kill him, who wanted to stop God's work. There are people throughout the land who, want, who are against Jesus and against the kingdom and they're for the darkness and you're gonna walk into those situations and like Nehemiah, sometimes you're gonna feel a little scared, you're gonna feel a little discouraged, but this is where you return. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Let's say that together out loud. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And that joy, it's a reminder that we are not defeated. Jesus, listen, we're not on the losing team. Jesus, I know it right here, end of the book. I know how the story ends. It doesn't end in defeat. If you know the Lord, you don't have to walk around like, oh, we're outnumbered, we're intimidated, we're defeated, this probably isn't gonna go well. You know, you don't have that in you. That's not who you are. That's not your story. What you walk around and say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And sometimes you gotta preach to yourself. But you say it, the joy of the Lord is my strength. When you look around Auburn and we're praying that God would do a great work in Auburn, I believe that in 2024, we haven't seen yet what God is gonna do in Auburn. We don't walk around Auburn like, oh, city of defeat. I'm defeated too. Not much is gonna change here. Let's retreat, kind of intimidated. Let's give up. We lost again. That's not coming from God. You walk around this city, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I believe the joy of the Lord is gonna grow where I live, work, learn, and play because I'm gonna walk in it. I'm gonna abide with Jesus. And that's what we're bringing everywhere we go. That's the joy of the Lord is powerful. And, and maybe you're here and you're thinking, yeah, you've got no idea about what I'm going through. You know, if you knew my situation, you, you wouldn't even talk about joy. Uh, well, this is what Anna realizes, and this is the third piece. It's having a secure future hope that is full of wonder. A future, and yes, we're gonna look in the future here, with wonder and security, greater than our current challenges. You say, well, you're gonna compare that, this future glory, to currently what we're going through? Absolutely, because God does over and over again. Now, Anna's 84 years old. That's a blessing. Wouldn't it be nice to live to your 84? That's a blessing. And if you're 84 and you're here today, what a blessing. Anna, now, she knows she doesn't have a lot of time left, and she's aging. Aging is not easy. Things aren't working how they used to work. And so here she is, 84, in the final season and she has joy. You can have more joy at 84 than 24. And the joy of God can keep growing in your life. And in this final season of her life, she wants to finish well. 
If you are 84 or older, keep going. We're cheering you on to keep finishing well. We're grateful for those who are in that age group here at our church. And every day we're closer to Christ's return. Every day we're closer to being with Christ. And we need a reminder of our future. It's important to remember where God has brought us from, what the situation is today, and where God is leading us to. Oftentimes the Israelites, they were in exile. Could be the Assyrians came in. Could be the Babylonians came in. It was cruel. It was terrible. It was just absolutely wrong, many of the things they experienced. But the prophet Isaiah in 35 verse 10 reminds them the exile is not the end of the story. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. The exile was real, but so is the return. And as they would return from exile with this hope and joy of the Lord, it was a picture, a foreshadowing, it was a prototype, it was a microcosm of us walking into ultimately that heavenly glory where all sadness and sickness and death is gone. It's a picture of our certain future. When you think about Christmas, it was not pristine. The birth of Christ it was not all cheerful. In fact, there was a lot of grieving and a lot of mourning. Why did that happen? Because there was someone named Herod. And Herod was jealous of this new King Jesus. Herod's philosophy of life is that I'm king. We don't need another king. I'm the only one who's going to be king. I'm in control and I'm calling the shots. Herod represents The Bible says that we all have flesh and we all have this desire to tell God, I'm in control, I'm the king, it's gonna go how I want it to go and you move out of the way because this is my life, I'm the king. That's Herod, that's our flesh. But we don't say yes to the flesh. Like the Bible says, we crucify, we we kill the flesh so we live for God. Herod didn't kill the flesh. In fact, he celebrated, gloried in the flesh. And then it wasn't just him thinking he's king, but now he's gonna enforce that with a decree to eliminate all threats. And you've gotta know that when Jesus was born, what did Herod do? He killed all those babies that were two and younger. And we don't sing about that in many of the Christmas songs but it's an important reality. Their lives were aborted, which means a premature ending. And what would you say? We have the birth of Christ and we have all these parents across the land who are grieving. What would you say to those parents? Would you say, Jesus is born, stop being sad. I don't think that's a good message. I think you would grieve with those who grieve. And I think grieving's important. And we never should belittle or minimize the grieving. But we enter in. When Jesus is born, all the grieving didn't stop. It was in the middle of the grieving. And as we grieve and as loved ones grieve, and we still abide with God, have you had this experience where you're grieving, but then there's a hope that's greater than your grief? 
and you're grieving, but the presence of God and the joy of the Lord, the grieving's still there, but now the joy's there and the joy is greater than the grieving and you're doing both together. The disciples, Jesus knew that there would be both the grieving and the joy. And Jesus said it in this way, John chapter 16, verse 22. He knew the time was coming and it was near that he would be crucified. So with you, now is your time of grief. They're gonna watch their savior be murdered. They're not gonna eat with him. They're not gonna laugh with him. They're not gonna walk with him. They're not gonna see him. They're entering a time of grief. He said, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. There's grieving, but there's a greater joy. When Simeon in the temple said to Mary, your own soul is gonna be pierced. That's the reality. Mary gave birth to Jesus. Her own soul's gonna be pierced as she watches how the world responds to her savior son. But this is also what Simeon said. Your son will be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. That there will be, there's a glory far beyond our temporary passing trials. There is a glory that far out exceeds it. And what Jesus was doing when he came alongside the disciples is saying, your grief is gonna be real. You're gonna be watching me murdered. I'm gonna lay down my, my life for you. But don't miss this. The joy, the world can't take it away. And this joy is gonna be so much greater. And the challenge Jesus laid out for the disciples is don't overfocus on your feelings right now in what's taken. Yes, grieve, but you need to see the big picture. I believe that sometimes in our life, in those low valleys, the only way to have joy is to see the big picture and to see it from God's perspective. And I know there's part of us that's like, I don't want an eternal perspective. I only wanna be in the moment and feel what I feel right now. But Jesus comes alongside those weary disciples and says, take a look. Because our lives right now, and this life does matter, but our lives right now are like one grain of sand on the entire beach. This hundred years compared to an eternity in God's presence with perfect joy, this hundred years is like one small grain of sand in the entire beach. And God has a joy that just doesn't run out. And he wants us to receive that joy. And what happens is Jesus's joy will overshadow the disciples' grief. People like Stephen are killed. The disciples are gonna be killed. They're gonna be martyred, but they have a joy that's greater. They're willing to lay down their lives. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Why? Because salvation is coming for the world and eternity's real and heaven's real. And ultimately, my life doesn't matter that much compared to all of this. That's the radical joy that Jesus brings. You can resist it or receive it, but that's the joy. And then this final step, Anna bringing the hope of Jesus to others around her. It says that they were coming up and then she spoke. And she spoke about Jesus. She spoke about the child. She spoke about redemption, that he buys back, that he came to save people from their sins. 
that this redemption, new heaven, new earth, the long-awaited Messiah is here. Don't miss this Messiah. And she brought words of joy and words of hope. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13. Again, the prophet, poetically, shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. I believe Anna grieved her whole life for the loss of her husband. That's why it's in scripture. If people tell you, oh, you have to stop grieving over something, like loved ones that I've lost, I continue to grieve. I think I'll grieve my whole life. But God comforts the afflicted ones. And God brings his comfort in a powerful way. And as you receive it, you start to share it. Joy grows when you share it. Now, as she shares about Jesus, she's sharing, because everyone knows her story. People know your story. And how could you have joy, Anna, like this, greater than your loss? Well, it's this Jesus right here. And she shares her story. She shares about Jesus. And that joy is good. Now, does she have any control over how people are going to respond? No control. When you share Jesus and share your story, do you have any control over how anyone responds? None whatsoever. But she's going to be faithful and trust God with the results. You share Jesus and what he's done in your life, trust God with the results. Joy and generosity go together. I'm so grateful for the generosity here at Grace and to be part of a generous church family. When I think about generous with gifts, our international partners, because of Christmas in July, you've given them gifts all around the world and, and they're so grateful and they let us know. I think about the financial assistance, Good Samaritan. And again, your generosity spreads the joy of the Lord through those gifts. Not only that, but meals that you make. I think of life groups that are blessing families that don't have money to provide gifts for their family right now. There's just so many stories of God's joy being shared, and it's wonderful. In Philemon chapter 1, verse 7, this is what... Uh, we read, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Generosity brings that joy, and we want to refresh with your talents. Do you know hundreds of people serve here on Sunday morning? Again, generous. Throughout the week, you serve your family well. Generous. You serve in the community well. Generous. Be generous with your words. This week, tell people, I love you. I appreciate you. Be generous with your words. Be generous with your words about Jesus in letting people know the hope that you have. Be generous with your words. And as you consider this generosity, uh, let's go ahead and stand up. And this is Romans chapter 14, verse 17. And I want us to say these words out loud together. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's say that again, because we worship a God of joy and a kingdom of joy. Let it sink in as we say this together, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In this moment, can we welcome Jesus and instead of having walls up, can we welcome the Lord? Instead of just be hurrying all the time, can we receive his joy in this moment? Let's worship Jesus together who reigns and who is worthy. Let's worship the King.